0: 2016 is when I really started to deeply respect this because I would go out with our field sales reps and I would listen to these conversations and I would understand what was going on when we had an SDR book a meeting and then we drove from San Diego to Orange County two hours to have a meeting with somebody and then felt what that was like and how uninterested they were in the product and not receptive they were to even having that kind of conversation. I felt that that's qualitative. You don't do that in a survey. You have to go feel that.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Chris Walker. Chris is the founder and CEO at Refine Labs. In our conversation, we're talking about B2B marketing and why Chris believes that B2B marketing is stuck and what some of the prescriptions are for getting it unstuck. So we also dive into how B2B marketing has changed over the past 12 months. I was affected by the pandemic and what that means for sales teams going forward. Chris also shares some of the new strategies he's recommending that enable marketers and sellers to more effectively connect with buyers and that more tightly align the buyer's journey with the selling process. All of this and much, much more, before we get to Chris, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So, thank you. All right, let's jump into it. All right, Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Really happy to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to finally speak with you. So uh, tell us a little bit about Refine Labs and what you guys do.
0: Yeah, so um, I created Refine Labs about two years ago. Actually, on April 1st, it'll be two years exactly. Um, And and the reason that I created it is because I couldn't find a company that would let me do marketing the way that I wanted to that I knew worked better. Mm Mm-hmm. To be honest. And so I created this company to be a a consultant. And quickly, we found out through the success of a couple of our customers and through our unique perspective that this was a lot more than a one person consulting shop. And so we've been able to um, grow really quickly in our model, I think, because of the quality of our people and the difference in how we think. And also, to be frank, like, we're better than most marketing agencies at marketing ourselves, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, uh, so, yeah, now we currently have uh, 25 full-time employees, and we work with about wow. 25 uh, sales-led B2B SaaS companies.
1: All right. So what do you do differently?
0: So the, the easiest way to think about this is when t- a typical company will hire a marketing agency. And for those listening, that's in quotes. They hire a company to do a specific task that they want to tell them what to do. It's what they do. Hey, I want you to just write execute. six pieces. Think, of. Execute. I want you to deliver me 100 leads from LinkedIn. I want you to do this. Like, mm-hmm. And most of our customers hire us so that we tell them what they should be doing, which is the core difference. The second piece is that we're not tied to any specific channel. And so we get invested in our customers' outcomes in terms of pipeline and revenue. Yes, we're in their Salesforce instance. No other company like mine will ever do that. Um, and we get tied to their their pipeline and revenue outcomes, and then we figure out what are the best ways to drive that forward. And if it's a company that's only focused on SEO, is only going to be able to do SEO. And that's mm-hmm. not the way that we look at things. And so, and though I think the last piece is the quality of our people. You rarely see directors of demand generation work that have worked inside of a Series C or D B two B SaaS company work at a company like mine. It's normally a lot of people that have never worked in house, and so. Right. Um, I think those are some of the ways that we've tried to uh, to break the model.
1: But i was thinking more about your perspective on marketing, though. I mean, what? Yeah. How are you looking at it differently than than people normally do?
0: Yeah. So um, let's uh, let's get into this. So sure. Um, I believe that a lot of people look at look at um, revenue in general like it's still 2010, as in sales owns most of the customer journey. Mm -hmm. In 2010, that's what happened. I believe that now marketing owns a majority of the customer journey. I think a lot of people would agree with that statement. However, they still do marketing like sales owns most of the journey. And so marketing is responsible for generating a high volume of low intent leads so that sales can do outbound sales. That's what a marketing agency does. That's what a lot of in-house teams do. Um, that's pretty much what it is. And what you end up with was terribly low low win rates, too many salespeople because they are dealing with a ton of low efficiency leads. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we try and break that perspective by first helping companies acknowledge that what they're doing right now isn't working by looking at their data, measuring customer acquisition costs and cost per SQO and different things like that, Mm -hmm. allowing executives to buy into the fact that it's not working. And when they buy into the fact that it's not working, it becomes a lot easier to change that model. And then we show them a different way to do it, which is forget about the lead target, focus on driving high intent leads that become customers at a high rate that your sales team actually wants to talk to, and build a model where you can continue to build on that through layers of channels, executions, and tactics.
1: And so how are you differentiating between low intent leads and high intent leads?
0: A high intent lead to me is a lead that comes to your website or otherwise finds you and says, hey, I would love to talk to your server about buying your product declared intent to buy is the way that I see it. Um, And there's not, and and there's other ways where you can sort of like quote unquote fake it, like the level of intent between a LinkedIn ad that says get a demo versus somebody that comes to your website organically on a desktop computer after talking to a bunch of their colleagues and asks for a demo that fits your ICP, the level of intents of those two are different. And so we Mm -hmm. focus specifically on last touch attribution, organic or direct traffic, Through that funnel into a demo conversion, which leads to the highest conversion rate. So we don't do a ton of conversion inside of awareness channels like paid social because there's not there's not a huge declared level of buying intent there. Right. And low intent leads are, I think, a majority of what companies do right now. Third party content syndication, LinkedIn ebook downloads, or get a demo um, ads on LinkedIn, Facebook type of stuff. Um, paid search to ebook downloads to a SDR cadence like all of that junk are mm-hmm. people where you're you're taking contact information that you could eas- just as easily get on Zoom Info or just as easily get on a million different data providers and right. do the exact same outbound action without wasting all your marketing team's time and money,
1: right? And not having a better results. So, um, <laughs> so what is the role in your mind? And maybe give an example some of your your customers of how they integrate. Their proactive outbound, their cold outreach into this type of marketing
0: program. Yeah. So, to, to be clear, a lot of our customers operate in large total addressable markets at what I would call mid market velocity ACV ranges, somewhere between okay. 30 and 100K, mm-hmm. right? And at 30 to 100K, in my view, that ACV does not justify a true like ABM model, like true orchestrated model. I don't believe that it justifies that. And so, right. our companies, the companies do have you know, these massive enterprise deals that they'll close two times a year for seven figures, right? They do have those, but there's not like a huge ABM strategy around that, which is what we like because in those ACV ranges, the customer acquisition costs on just pure outbound is going to be bad. The customer acquisition costs on performance marketing to outbound is going to be really bad. And so doing marketing in a different way where Mm -hmm. you have acceptable customer acquisition costs that can scale at that ACV range, I find to be uniquely differentiated for how we do things. Um, and so to be direct, there is very little orchestration, right? Like we can go and take data about who are in um, cadences outside mm-hmm. of Salesforce and then do targeting or we can take stuff, ingest stuff from Sixth Sense and mm-hmm. then do targeting like that. But the the level of orchestration is nowhere near as the, the technical marketing that a lot of people do. I don't I don't consider myself a marketing technologist. I just spend very little time inside of the technology, unless I have found a tactic that already works, and I'm using technology to accelerate it. I think the problem with a lot of marketing teams right now is that they let the tech drive their strategy versus finding the strategy that works, then applying tech to it afterwards.
1: <laughs> Shocking, um, and so, so you're giving an example that that customer you know closed a couple of big deals a year. Mm-hmm. is is it a couple just because they're transitioning as many companies do hey we're going to start small learn how to sell to larger accounts or just their products just don't fit in the larger
0: opportunities mm, perhaps because there's not that many mm-hmm. um you know what i mean and perhaps they have a larger competitor like there's a we, we have 25 customers so it's hard to pick out a ex- ex- different sure. example without sort of like calling out a specific company right. that we work with but um when you're selling at those ACV ranges, I just think it's very common that most of your deals are going like, to fall into that sort of range. And then you're going to have the one-off if you're on a per seat or a per type of thing basis where you have a couple massive ones. Um, are they trying to move up market? Yes. Is every company that's listening to this podcast trying to move up market? Yes. But you don't just get there straight away, right? Like no. If you're an $80 million ARR SaaS company, you're competing with a billion-dollar company that holds that part of the market. You're going to need to work your way up, and so I think a lot of the companies that jive with our strategy um, are trying to collect a lot of revenue along the way, and the companies that don't drive drive with our strategy are the ones that forget all of the mid market deals and then just build their 50 account ABM list and do outbound sales to those and f- unfortunately those sales cycles take way longer than they expect and they're much more challenging to close than they expect right. and they miss their revenue targets so i think that you i think that a lot of companies are missing uh, a key opportunity in the mid market by being so obsessed with enterprise sales.
1: Yeah, i mean i'm sort of divided because i mean i've mm-hmm. sometimes i think if your goal is you want to sell big companies is Go sell big companies. Uh, sure. Yeah, up front. And it takes a little bit of time, but you also mm-hmm. get through that learning curve a little bit early. I and mean, that's how I've grown some companies. Is, yeah, totally. We, went, we had a product that was only for really big companies. Yeah, <laughs> and and it, it, can,
0: it can definitely work. Don't get me right. wrong, right? There are plenty of companies that have done it. It's just not for me. Yeah. Because I, I truly believe that there's a lot more um, sales that goes into that than marketing.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and we'll we'll get to that because that's an interesting topic. So, I mean, one of the things I did want to explore is this idea about sort of how marketing has changed really in the last year and how some of that impacts uh, sales. And and you had some interesting ideas you've written about. One that that I really liked is your post about trade shows. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a perfect exemplification of of sort of old school marketing versus. Thinking outside the box a little bit in terms of creating much broader impact. So, share with us if you can, if you remember that post, it wasn't that long ago, I guess. This is what your thought is about hey, instead of as the world opens up again, instead of going back to that massive trade show, try something different.
0: Yeah, so let's just look back, right? Because I've been doing B2B marketing since 2012. Mm -hmm. And so since 2012, I've been going to trade shows as an employee. I've been building the booth. I've been standing in the booth. I've been listening (laughs) to the conversations. I've been tracking the results afterwards. I've been understanding how, when the sales team calls a lead that we collected for them, what they give me as feedback. I've been doing that for almost 10 years now, right? Mm -hmm. And so in 2015, 16, I finally went to one of the events where we put on a $60,000 sponsorship and we built a $50,000 20 by 20 booth. And we had 30 people there, including executives. And we spent all this money and I tracked what the outcomes were. And we created zero net new opportunities. Right. And if you're building a booth, you must measure it on net new. You, the cost of the total event was probably a quarter million dollars. Um, and so if you're measuring a trade show booth, you must measure it on net new because it, if you're going after expansion or current customers or things like that, you can do all that stuff without a booth. Mm-hmm. You do not need a booth to go and meet with your current customer and upsell them another another product or expand right. with them. And so when you measure it on net new, the assumption is that in 2008 – and we, I really want to look back this far for people. In 2008, when the internet wasn't mature, a lot of people would wait to go to this conference to discover new products because yep. there weren't a lot of other ways to discover them. Mm-hmm. And so it was an opportunity for people to stumble upon your booth and find the new innovation and learn about it and collect a lead and buy stuff. And that world does not exist anymore. I agree. And so that's my backstory on trade shows. I measured it in 2016. The company was doing 11 of those types of events. The next year, I got them to cut it down to three. I took all that money from the eight events that we didn't go to anymore, I invested that into digital. I figured that out and drove millions of dollars of pipeline and revenue for that company. And so I just figured that. Based on the amount of money that's being allocated there, if you thought deeply about what else could I do with this money to drive the same outcome, you would think about a, a lot of potentially creative ideas that are a lot more effective. And so um, when I look at a lot of executives will say, oh, we don't believe in Facebook ads or we don't want to run LinkedIn ads unless we get leads. And I'm like, let's talk about the stuff we're doing right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I just measured all the stuff we're doing right now. None of it's working. Why are we scrutinizing new things when all this st- we should be scrutinizing what we're doing right now? Um, and so I've really helped a lot of companies look at their data and do that analysis and figure out what are all the things that we're wasting money on that we could just stop doing and take all of that money and effort and go and do something else. Now on the trade show side, I really want to, like, I, I think people got their sort of like their like their knees cut out from under them or something when this happened at the beginning because a lot of companies hadn't gone through that process that I went through in 2016 Mm -hmm. and spent three years after that figuring out better things to do. And so when you're getting, when you're spending 50% or more of your variable marketing budget on events and that's what you're living off of for your qualified pipeline, whether or not it's net new or whatever, however you want to get to your number and do your attribution. But um, a lot of people got stuck there and they didn't know where to go and move that money that was actually going to be productive. And so that was a challenge for a lot of people. A lot of people are now trying to figure out digital when they should have figured that my theory on the whole COVID situation is that it's accelerating things that companies should have done anyway. Like they should have had this stuff figured out five years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean Scott Galloway talks about COVID didn't change the future, it just accelerated
0: the future. Um mm-hmm. And so oh. to, to get a little bit deeper on the trade show one, because yeah. I do want to cover this this topic, I thought it was really interesting because I've, I have I don't talk about things in theory. I've actually done this, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of doing the trade show booths, I suggested that if you're going to spend $2 million of, a, of your trade show budget, which is a reasonable trade show budget for a 50-plus million ARR yep. company, yep. and you took all of that $2 million and all of that effort and time, and instead you built 50 what i would consider micro events with the core objective of creating content that your customers and buyers want while also putting on a really good event for people and you and you did that with influential people in your market and you did that around in different cities
1: yeah you're saying do it geographically and in each location bring in a guest expert new and-
0: programming in every event right. Right. Film and audio capture and high production, and then you take all of. You're not try, the thing that people need to get their minds wrapped around is that you're not trying to sell to the people at the event. Right. You're using it to create the content that you put on the internet, which creates a ton more awareness about people that will consider and it drives way more business doing it that way. And I did those things. I did that in uh, January and February, and we had ones planned for March and April that we had to cancel for obvious reasons. And the amount of brand lift and the amount of uh, way that we were able to move up market through those two executions of the video content that was put out and the video content that was shared by those influential people was massive. And imagine if you were able to do that with your company that has a way larger budget than my company and way more resources. And and so I think people should really consider like a different, a different approach. But it first requires you to acknowledge that what you're doing right now is not that effective. And it also requires you to think that, the things that you're going to transition to do, you might need to measure them differently. There, you might need different talent that you have in your company right now. Mm-hmm. It's go, it much, might be much more difficult to actually pull off. But a lot of those things, because of those constraints, are a lot more effective because people, a lot of people aren't going to do them because they're challenging.
1: Well, I mean, the reach is so much broader. You know, so you're given this example. You you said 100 micro events. Well, let's just take 50 as you mentioned. Here is, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, if you're doing let's say 50 events around the country, you've got a special guest expert in each one of those. So, as you said, you've got 50 long form videos about the events you can share on your various distribution platforms. Uh, 50 podcast episodes with an expert, which you know, and then you can create micro videos and slice up the videos for. You know, create a thousand videos out of that that you share mm-hmm. on your again on your various platforms. Consider that to the impact you get out of, especially as you said, uh, zero net new leads out of a trade show. Basically, uh, you
0: get leads. Yeah. Opportunities is a different story, depending yeah. on how you define a lead, yeah, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, opportunities, qualified opportunities. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think people are missing on on the influential side. Like I think people don't understand the actual impact of having that person at your event, which attracts Mm -hmm. people. And if that person shares the content afterwards, the amount of reach and trust that they've already built with their audience that then brings new people to you and um, immediately gives you more credibility because you're associated with them. And so people are not – I think people in B2B are really missing on that perspective, I think because of how watered down and kind of like trashy it's gotten in B2C on Instagram. But there are really thoughtful ways to execute this in B2B that are going to drive massive results. We've been doing it.
1: Well, and I think some of it is, too, is it seems like in a lot of B2B, there's sort of an allergy to brand building. And there's an
0: allergy to not doing things that are difficult to measure.
1: Right. Which branding typically falls into that category, though.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. What we're doing right now is really hard to measure. I can't, I can't tell you how much revenue our podcast that we've done, 120 episodes so far in the past 12 months, I can't tell you how much revenue exactly it's driven. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are scared by that. I'm not scared <laughs> at all.
1: Yeah, you no, know, I think that's one of the one of the bases as you sit in marketing meetings, and it's like yeah, I think the reason people continue to use these strategies you talk about that aren't effective is because they can measure them, even mm-hmm. though they measure uh
0: poor results. Yeah, they they can measure them at a leading metric level, never look anything beyond that because of right. how bad it is. Right. Um and I I, I truly believe that there's um, that it's going to be really difficult for executives that have grown up in in the world through the like Google kind of mm-hmm. like early social time frame right. to change their mindset around this you your mind's already been changed and you believe in this stuff or you're never going to believe in it until you retire is the way that I see it and that's uh, it's it's really sad because there is a massive opportunity and if you're going to run a company for 20 more years the way that right. you're doing it right now you're going to really struggle
1: okay but you talk about this in one of your posts. You talk about the fact is okay. There's an approach you can use to get an executive team aligned around this new this new market division. So, so what is that? I mean, how do you when you go into a company? Clearly, it's going to be one of your tasks. Uh, yes, yeah. I'm sure that not everybody's bought into it, even though they brought you in to help change. Absolutely.
0: Them. Right. A, a so, majo- yeah I mean if you look at a majority of the market doesn't believe in most of the things that I say despite right. the attraction I have on LinkedIn and different things like that and that's fine because my number one the thing that we do is we attract people that already believe in what we're doing I spend zero time convincing people that are not that don't want to be convinced right and so we attract those people at least a, a champion at the executive level that wants to do it and sometimes it's sales to be honest this is not just a CMO coming in like we have CROs and, you know, global head of sales coming in and saying, hey, I really want you to work with us. Um, yeah, because, they, they, in the they, because they feel the, it.
1: <laughs> yeah, they said in the marketing means they see, yeah, all this money we're spending isn't working.
0: And again, the 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 process is quite simple. Step one, look at all the data and just, it just present the data to executives about this is what's happening. Your customer acquisition cost on what you're doing on LinkedIn ads is 49 months. The CAC payback is 49 months. You're wasting all this time with SDRs. You have 12 SDRs following up on these leads. Mm-hmm. This is what else could those 12 people be doing? What else could we be doing with this $800,000 a year? And right. so just by presenting the data, and we do that on a on a project basis because the goal is that they see it, and then they buy into it, and then we actually go and do our work. And if they if they see, and we're a 100% conversion rate on this, like all the, the data is the same. Like I've done this at 11 companies in the past 12 months. Mm-hmm. At fifty million million plus companies, the data right. is exactly the same at every company because they're all doing the same stuff, and we have a hundred percent conversion rate to a customer because it's really bad, and then once they get bought in, then we actually go and execute our plan
1: right so yeah, I mean why interesting one of the things you'd written about um, you know as people address this and start getting into this is they start getting leads that uh, convert at much higher rates so Walk us through that because you're talking about a fairly significant differences. Instead of 0.1%, as is typical in a lot of SaaS companies, you're talking about 10% or higher
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: conversions in the customer. So, And this is from initial point of contact. I mean, so what? Uh,
0: raw lead. What
1: you, yeah, raw lead. What are you doing different?
0: So the difference is not necessarily about the marketing, it's acknowledging that your lead sources have dramatically different conversion rates based on how someone gets to you, which is a surrogate for buying intent. Okay. And so, we just what we call split the funnel between low intent and high intent. And like I said, high intent only people that ask to you talk to your sales team, right? And if you have a clean funnel, you will win those at seven to twelve percent. If you're an established company with core market traction mm-hmm. in your ICP, and you get people to do that, and you have a clean funnel, you win those at seven to twelve percent, right? And then, but companies spend all their time because of the serious decisions demand waterfall that was created decades ago. Um, they spend all their time generating low intent leads to do tele prospecting, and so they generate low intent leads in high volume on, like I said, content syndication, LinkedIn ads, um, ebook downloads through Google, and then do right. outbound sales that way. And if you split off that funnel, you're gonna have those win at 0.1 percent or less, and you're gonna sp- and you're spending all of your marketing money to drive those people. And so what we do is we just stop doing that. And we spend all of the money trying to get more people educated and bought in and understanding the problems that the, they can solve and understand the differentiation of the company, so that they come inbound through the conversion point that converts at seven to twelve percent. And yes, it requires more. Uh, it requires more time. It requires a different level of marketing execution than building an ebook once a quarter and running ads to it. It requires mm. different processes. It requires different level of customer understanding. It requires a different level of agility. And so that's the, that's the difference. But we, the first step is to acknowledge that the volume is not, is not the only part of the equation. The conversion rates matter just as much. And so yeah. what we end up with is we end up with, honestly, usually 90, if you go year over year with a company that's been with us for 12 months, year over year comparison, they get 90% less leads. They get 50% or more, 150% from previous year qualified yeah. pipeline. Right, And that revenue starts tipping over on a 90 to 120-day sales cycle. And so that's the difference here. um, And then when you don't have all of those leads, when you reduce that by 90%, all those leads that you don't have, you don't have all your SDRs wasting all that time. And they can go and then do outbound to your target accounts that are going to be the million-dollar ACV deals right? instead of following up with people that don't want to buy for a 20K deal.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you can just hear CMOs shaking when they they think about this because – I mean, and CROs even too, because you know, there's a whole it's like a religious war out there, right? Is is in the sales world, it's like you're describing something that's predominantly inbound lead flow of high intent leads in terms of what's mm-hmm. in your pipeline. And yeah, you know, there's like I said religious wars. People think, pff, you know, the only good lead is one I develop myself through outbound.
0: Sales sales should be developing their own leads too from outbound. I don't consider an ebook download to outbound, outbound. Right. Right. And so yeah, sales should be sourcing thirty to fifty percent of pipe depending on if you have a partner channel or not. Like right. that's that's what should be happening and I, I agree with that.
1: Well I, I think that's a great a great ratio of myself. Mm-hmm. I my point of view, there's people who think it should be the inverse, right? The seventy percent outbound and thirty percent marketing and yeah, to me that seems crazy in this day and age.
0: Um, I would agree. I would agree. I think that at, at scale, you're looking, if, you, if let's just exclude partner. If you do have partner, I think partner should be contributing 20% or more. Or it's not even maybe not be worth the effort. Right. Um, but I think that you should be at, at minimum 50-50 marketing, but I think marketing should be over 50% at companies once they figure this out. And for Like I said, for a 90-plus day sales cycle, it's going to take you 12 months to get there, more than mm-hmm. 12 months potentially depending on where you're starting from. Right. And so, I think a lot of companies. I, I like working with more mature companies, organizationally mature and marketing sophistication in marketing, because they have scraped their knees a bunch of times and they understand that it's actually hard to get this stuff to work, right? Well, but like,
1: let's talk about this in the perspective, though. And this is a great point you brought up. But you're working mm-hmm. with more mature companies, but companies that are. Yeah, you know, Series A, Series B's company, a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. scale revenue quickly, and you're talking about a level of patience that's quite frankly hard for, for many of the, the executives to uh, exhibit because they're feeling the pressure from the board. Mm-hmm. So how did, and how to do be they honest, they put that?
0: themselves in that position by how they raise money, right? Like let's just call it what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you raise an A, and then you got a three, four extra revenue to get to B within an 18 to 24-month time frame or something like that, whatever it comes down to. You put yourself in, in that position. Um, and yes, I, uh, those types of companies I usually do not sign up for because their goals are more built for a sales team than a marketing engine. And, so, and, if you, and when you put right. pressure on a marketing team to deliver things in a specific time window, you do the wrong things to get there if i needed to grow my company to the size that we are right now in 3 months we wouldn't be here we'd be behi- we would be behind because we would well, be like- doing all the, the all the wrong things and so the first thing is setting like we'll never work with a company that's not philosophically aligned with our model and has goals that are realistic and we vet those before they work with us and i know because we've done it with 25 companies what's realistic and what's not based on what's happening in their funnel right now
1: yeah well but to your point i think for companies in that that situation is they're also Doing the wrong thing sales wise too, because it's not sustainable either. Unless they're all dealing in, you know, infinite TAMS, uh, which nobody has.
0: Totally, yeah, Don't and like you. I've I've interacted with enough of these companies, right? The 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 ex, the traditional playbook would be to ra- you know, get a couple of customers, raise a Series A, and build a ten person sales team, and then do outbound sales. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, and then your CAC is going to be three years plus, and a lot of those companies don't care at that point. Um, but for me, like when I know that you can get customers at a way lower CAC, and it might take you a minute longer to do that, I just like, I again, I just like being in place where we're aligned. Um, mm-hmm. It just, yeah,
1: yeah, it's an interesting challenge because what you're talking about is, from a marketing perspective, is the approach that A and B companies should adopt, but.
0: Just to put it a different way, is just to, to I, I don't think that people have a, a good respect on where to draw the line between what sales does and what marketing does. I think in a lot of B2B companies, because of how sales driven historically they are, mm-hmm. they actually have their marketing team do a lot of things that are more like sales or, or business development, not actual marketing, in my view. Um, sure. Because that's where you get into like companies only running lead gen or performance marketing, and that stuff. Like that's sourcing contact information to do sales. That's not marketing. Right, and so that's sort of like the way that I look at it.
1: No, I think you're right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's yeah, an interesting conundrum. But I, I talk about you know companies are in that early stage is they really they're not building a company; they're running a promotion. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, as a result, you adopt certain behaviors in order to sustain the promotion instead of building a sustainable company.
0: And the challenge is that is that that behavior catches up with you. Like a lot of companies enter to us at 30 million ARR because they realize that it's not going to get them any farther. Right. Because oh, yeah. they're not going to be able to raise it. When, when the revenue target starting, your growth rate stays the same. Your revenue targets get bigger as you go. And the efficiency stays the same or gets worse. And you need way more headcount to scale it. And you look at it and you're like, we're never going to get to the next round if we yeah. don't if we keep doing this. And it'll. There's some companies that have a great product and it fits well, and they'll be able to carry through it, or they'll be able to raise enough money, and they'll be celebrated like the unicorns. But for the most part, a lot of companies will not get through that part of this of the growth phase.
1: Well, eighty to ninety percent of them, right? I mean, if you if you talk to a VC about the distribution of companies in their portfolio, ten, fifteen percent, maybe twenty on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our winners, four are moderate successes, and fours are. What they consider failures, but even those bottom four oftentimes could build a sustainable company, but Mm -hmm. they burn through all this capital with bad, exhibiting bad sales and marketing behaviors. And to your point, they get to a certain point, it's like, oh shit, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. And they don't have the luxury of the runway to change.
0: I think this begs the question about, um, Um, I think there's some very smart founders that are thinking differently about funding. I see some fintech products coming out that think differently about funding. Mm -hmm. Um, And depending about where you are as a founder and where you want to go, there might be an alternative vehicle that's better for you than VC money. It's just the truth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are some alternatives coming up. Absolutely. Well, one other topic I want to talk about too is, and it's related to this because it's yeah, I see these pressures and I hear companies talk about it. Is is you talk about creating content for your audience, not the funnel? Mm-hmm. And so, tell us what you mean by that.
0: So, what I see, and I interact with, I would say hundreds of marketing teams on a monthly mm-hmm. basis. What I see is companies take a uh, marketers that have never talked to their customer or a prospect that doesn't use their product, take a right. buyer persona filled with assumptions mm-hmm. that are not usually not true. Stereotypes that are not true. Right. And then try and fit together SEO content that fits into some buyer stage journey that they have little understanding about what it is. Like, and that's what they do. And then they're like, oh, like we'll build this like seven step retargeting flow where somebody gets this awareness content about our thought leadership and then they get this case study and then they get this thing and they, they like. Nobody buys like that. And then they think about in three days that someone's going to go through that funnel and buy their 100K ACV SaaS tool. And it's just not how it works. Um, And so the way that I think about it is have a very unique differentiated offering that's positioned well in the market. Have a narrative, right? Just have that. And then create content that helps your audience no matter what they what they talk about. I talk about sales, I talk about funding, I talk about entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. I talk about career, I talk about a lot of things that have nothing to do with what we do right. that my audience likes, which creates awareness. People then go to our website, the people that fit with the messaging, because we have very narrow messaging to a very narrow ICP, it works yep. for them and they convert. And so there this whole like people spend all their time in this middle of the funnel where buyers are not interested at that point because they have no idea about why they should even look at you. The messaging's vanilla because they refuse to make choices on their ICP right. and they spend no time at the top of the funnel. And that's why I think that there's just a better way to do it.
1: And I think it really highlights a real problem that I see is is the companies are really generally pretty at least uh let's talk about the SaaS space, the newer SaaS companies is generally pretty poor at ex- clearly explaining what they do.
0: Do you know the reason why?
1: Well, because they don't want to make the choices, as you talk about.
0: Yeah, it comes down to not wanting to make choices and niche down on an audience, right? Like, I could go out and say, we're the marketing firm for everybody, right? Like, I could say that. It would make our TAM better. Um, But we are the marketing firm for velocity sales in the ACV range of 20 to 150k for B2B SaaS companies at these types of stages which limits our TAM to like 15,000 companies.
1: Still perfect and perfect.
0: it's a still it's still pretty big especially yep. with our deal sizes but it requires to make choices and therefore our messaging and our content can be specific to just them. And so the messaging is is they have a hard difficult time explaining what their thing is because they're trying to please everybody. Because they won't make choices on who their stuff is actually for, especially at the early stage. You can mm-hmm. always you can always broaden as you grow. You can always expand as you grow. But I love having a it's just a core marketing principle about making choices about how you're going to segment the market so that you can deliver something that's exactly for them in a way that they really want. Grow your company. Expand your offering. Build new features. Do those different things. And then start to move out from there. I just don't see a lot of companies think about it at a very strategic level right now. They think about it as horizontal. We want to sell to every vertical and everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, we posted last year on LinkedIn, uh, I posted a a thing about, you know, tell me in five words or less what you sell. And yeah, this was really hard for Mm -hmm. most people that were were doing it because they want to default to sort of yeah, product-based descriptions as opposed to in five words, tell me the value you're providing to the buyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very difficult. I mean, the, it was actually a little bit of a contest, but we had yeah, yeah hundreds and hundreds of submissions around the world, and and it just sort of highlighted this point: is that companies, when you think about it, this is this is salespeople out calling customers. They have no idea. Mm-hmm. I think this is still one of the real fundamental issues that companies, to your point, about niching down is you have to niche down to be able to say that, and mm-hmm. and come up with this. And also, it's not the same for everybody you call. It's going to be different for the CEO versus the revenue leader versus the whomever, you know, sales ops person. And yeah, people resist it because they don't want to make the choice.
0: Mm-hmm. And for, I don't know if I have like a u a. I believe that my perspective is unique because I didn't grow up in SaaS. I grew up in recurring revenue model hardware, like capital consumable Mm -hmm. type of models, things like that in different industries. And so when I did that, like like marketing builds your business strategy in those industries. Like marketing decides what your go-to-market is. Mm -hmm. Marketing decides who you're selling to, how you're going to go and target those. It doesn't happen like that way in SaaS, which I find very interesting because like I would go out and spend eight weeks with, Customers and prospects, where they worked, when they were using products, whether they were ours or not, learn about them, ask them questions, and then say, and then sell after them. you do that with a ton of different, without trying to sell, with no agenda, yeah. right? And when you do that with no core objective of selling, you get the truth. And when you look at it through that lens, you say, oh, like this type of person doesn't buy our product because of this. It makes sense. This type of person is a much better fit because when I look at all of our competitors and I look at why they need us, we have this one thing that nobody else does, and so mm-hmm. we should lean into that right now while right. we continue to grow and so I think that for what i for whatever reason I just don't see a lot of people doing that i don't I, I see very few marketers unless they sell to marketers spend a lot of time with their customers or prospects in the market
1: and i I appreciate your approach, but I also think especially in early stage companies there's value in having Marketing people go out and actually try to sell the product to.
0: <laughs> yeah. To be yeah, yes 100 percent. There's tons of tons of value in it.
1: Another level of understanding that comes from having the sales conversation, but I think yeah. both are valuable for sure. Yeah. But, I mean, t-
0: having two separate objectives with two yeah. different activities and just making sure that you know which one you're doing at that time.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it speaks to sort of a larger issue. Some of the things you're talking about, which is that. Yeah, that the, the sales processes and buying processes seem to be further out of alignment now than ever. Mm-hmm. And and when I yeah you know, obviously talk to hundreds of sales leaders in this show and in other conversations every year, it's like, it doesn't seem to be an awareness that that gap needs to close. Mm-hmm. And maybe marketing has a role in helping with that, but it's, it's uh,
0: this is There's a CEO level decision.
1: Heading in different levels, different directions. Excuse me. I mean,
0: buyers are going one way. Companies are trying to run their process in a completely different direction. Um, yeah. And executives don't see it. I get it. Like I, I work with enough companies to understand this, right? And I did in 2016 is when I really started to deeply respect this because I would go out with our field sales reps and I would listen to these conversations mm-hmm. and I would understand what was going on when we. You know, had an SDR, book a meeting, then we drove from San Diego to Orange County, (laughs) two hours to have a meeting with somebody and then felt what that was like and how uninterested they were in the product and not receptive they were to even having that kind of conversation. I felt that. Mm-hmm. That's qualitative. You don't you don't do that in a survey. You have to go and feel that. Yeah. And so I felt that, and I saw other people that were very like had said, "Hey, I want to get a demo. Can you come show me this?" And I saw what that was like. And then I did a, and then I was like, "We need to get more people to do this." And the executives were like, "We want to continue to build our SDR team." And I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and survey 600 of our customers about how they buy products like ours, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna find out." So I did that survey. I mm-hmm. sent it to. It was um, unbiased, non-branded through a third party. Six hundred mm-hmm. of our exact buyer, uh, the person that would sign off on this stuff, right. and we did the survey about what What are the steps that you take when you're evaluating a new product? Where do you discover new products? Mm-hmm. Like how? Um, at what point do you want to talk to a sales rep? in your buying process? Do mm-hmm. you use these types of channels to learn about these things? And we found a lot of interesting stuff. When when we looked through the buying process for this buyer, it was, what, what do you do? Number one, I research online. Number right. two, I talk to a colleague at a facility that I trust.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Number three, I want a demo. And we were just spending all our time trying to shove people into demos.
1: Frank Gartner had their study a few years ago about buyer enablement, which I refer to often in the show, because <laughs> what stuns me is, is they researched, I don't know, 2,500 companies or more enterprises, mm-hmm. and came up a flow chart that was very messy about how people buy, but at the core, there were four key jobs that buyers accomplished, had to get accomplished to make a decision. And you would think that the astute sales leader would say well, I should align my sales process with what the buyer is trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. But I haven't encountered a single sales organization yet that's diverged from what they're currently doing, which is basically the same process that sales teams have been running for decades.
0: Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is?
1: (laughs) Well, fear. Same thing we talked about previously.
0: Fear of changing.
1: Fear of change. The unknown. Yeah. And it's like Oh, you mean I need to suddenly judge where the buyer is in their buying process based on where they actually are in their process as opposed to where I think they are based on our process? I mean, it's mm-hmm. like and I mean it's it's stunning. And it's to that point it's like, yeah. And people just I said I haven't seen anybody say make a meaningful change say, "Yeah, we're we're going to change how we're doing this to align with the way the buyer's doing it." Mm-hmm. I think we're sort of stuck until that, that happens. I mean, you talk about B2B marketing being stuck. I think B2B sales is is stuck similarly as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I believe my my – I'm not even sure this is a hypothesis anymore. I think a lot of people believe it to be true. I believe that revenue organizations are stuck because mm-hmm. they won't break out of the model that exists right now, and they can't fix marketing, which then puts pressure on sales to continue. You have to do those things to grow the company, so you get stuck not being able to change. And so I do believe that this is rooted in changing marketing first, which then relieves pressure from sales and allows sales to innovate. But you got to let marketing innovate first and drive pipeline, so that sales doesn't have to carry the entire pipeline and revenue target.
1: Right. So and I one believe of the,
0: that's the process for fixing it. Um, yeah.
1: But well, one of the ways people are looking at, at trying to fix this is to say, oh, "Well, let's create this revenue operations approach, which we unify." Sales and marketing under a single head and align the goals, and you know have a single source of truth. And revenue operations will drive the processes and the actions. I mean, what are you seeing in your customers about that?
0: Um, I I don't know what the stat is. I would imagine that less ten percent or less of companies have truly adopted this model. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree, um, yeah. that's my that's my guess, and. I see a CRO leader owning marketing and sales different than what a revenue operations function does. I think those are actually two distinctly different things. Um, I see some companies picking it up. What I see most often, and I experienced this the first time, in 2013 I was a marketing manager at a company and I reported to the vice president of sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. And that person was the vice president of sales. Didn't okay. understand anything about marketing. Market marketing, yeah. And, I, and that's what you're going to get when you promote a CRO because the CRO, for whatever reason, except for Daryl Prail, I don't know a very, know very other, few other people, where the CRO comes from a marketing background.
1: Yeah, and Daryl being at Vanilla Soft, right?
0: Yeah, and so yeah. most people will pr- promote a VP of sales into a CRO role, and then therefore the CRO is going to heavily weight their core function that they believe in the challenge the thing that I see is a lot, I think a lot of companies struggle with marketing right now. Wait until you put a CRO in charge of marketing that doesn't understand how to do it
1: Well yeah the, the political infighting the result from trying to break down the silos is gonna be pretty intense yeah
0: yeah and so companies think that putting one leader in charge of this is going to solve their alignment issues, but their alignment issues are created at the metrics level. It's very obvious that the metrics create this issue, not the the fact that it's not under one leader. Mm-hmm. A lot of CMOs can't do anything differently because of how companies score their marketing organization. And I feel that's sad because the the fix is actually pretty simple. You just got to be able to do it and you got to be able to work through the transition period where it's not going to feel very safe. Yeah,
1: because you can't attribute And everything. So I think
0: companies love to put band-aids. They put band-aids on everything with tech or organization structure or other things like that instead of looking deeply at what the actual issue is. And the actual issue is that you're going to market in a way that doesn't align with how buyers buy. Yeah.
1: yeah, Fundamental issue, I think, both marketing and sales at this point.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. And the revenue operations function, let's get into that for a little a, sure. a second because I, I believe in that a, a, a lot. Right? right? I believe in it in a way where I started doing that stuff in 2016 as a marketer because it made sense that a marketer would look at pipeline and revenue by source and figure mm-hmm. out what the most efficient way is and figure out how to improve the demo to proposal conversion rate because that was my pipeline i wanted right. to go back and report how much how much money we put out in proposals and how much we closed one right. so that i could keep running my programs it made it just makes sense for a marketer to do those things um but what i see right now is a lot of revenue operations people that are data people not and yeah. data and tech people not um customer-centric people and so um i believe that you start with the customer with empathy and understanding and then build processes around them. And I mm-hmm. think that right now a lot of stuff is, I, I see revenue operations as a, as a much larger function than what it's being represented as in a company today, which is basically just putting marketing and sales ops together. I see it as a very different function long term.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the, it's funny as, as you listen to what a lot of people talk about in terms of revenue operations, it harkens back to yeah, sort of things that were done, I hate to say it, 30, 40 years ago, where actually there was unified sales and marketing in many companies. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Chris, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but. Uh, Gosh,
0: could do this forever.
1: It's been fantastic. <laughs> right? so yeah, really
0: Thank you. So, people want to
1: connect with you and learn more about Refine Labs. How should they do that?
0: So uh, so LinkedIn's the best place. Um, I publish content on LinkedIn daily. Check that out. Uh, Chris Walker on LinkedIn. And then if you'd like, we're getting tons of feedback, awesome feedback from people on our podcast. So it's the State of Demand Gen podcast. Very focused on demand generation for mm-hmm. B2B SaaS. And so you're interested in that. Feel free to check it out. We publish three episodes a week.
1: Excellent. Yeah, you do. And you do great LinkedIn posts about each episode as well. And um, we'll make sure we do this again.
0: Yeah, Andy, appreciate you. Uh, Thanks for having me. I had a great time.
1: Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Chris Walker, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.